Well, I'd invite you to take your Bibles out and grab your core guide. Place on the front where you can take notes, and then the week one discussion for core groups is on, on the back. And we have been journeying through Daniel. We started back in July. And so week one of core groups, we're going to kind of go back in time, and we're we're going to focus on chapters one and two. And so if you want to prepare yourself for uh, this week's core group, uh, I recorded uh, just a little summary of chapter one and posted it on our Facebook page this morning. So if you want to, to revisit that, you can. If you want to go to centraliachurch.com, you can click on our media tab and find our video archive if you want to go back and watch the message in its entirety. Well, where we find ourselves this morning is in Daniel chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, open those up with me to Daniel chapter 5. Last week, we covered chapter 4, and the way the book of Daniel comes together, chapter 4 and chapter 5, they go together. Chapter 4, if you remember from last week, we read about King Nebuchadnezzar and a little pride issue that he had going on. And it was brought to his attention, and we found that he landed in exile for a period of time. And at the end of that exile, what brought him out and brought him back to life, back to restoration, was, was that he, you know, pride causes us to look down all the time. And he humbled himself and, and he looked up and recognized God most high. Th that's chapter four. That's one response that that we can have to pride. Chapter 5 is a really easy chapter to understand. 4 and 5 go together. 4 gives us a way out of pride. Chapter 5 is, gives us the opposite. Chapter 5 tells us about what happens when we refuse to relent, when we refuse to humble ourselves. So there's two outcomes in chapter 4 and 5. 4 leads us back to life and health and restoration and relationship with God. Chapter 5, as we begin to look here, really paints a picture for us of what the consequences of hardening our hearts against God, uh, what that outcome is likely to, to look like. So what I want to do, I want to read, I want to read the whole chapter for you today, and, and I kind of want to do it, I'm just going to stroll through the text if, that's, if that works for you, okay? So we're in Daniel chapter 5, starts off like this, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. So this is a big, this is a big party that's going on here. Now, there is a time gap between chapter 4 and chapter 5. Chapter 4, we were dealing with King Nebuchadnezzar, and he's dominated the text for chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. And now, as we get into chapter 5, we read about a different king, King Belshazzar. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar passed away in 562 B.C. And following Nebuchadnezzar, the, the Babylonian Empire had a series of leaders that just kind of ratcheted down and, you know, just kind of let things spiral out of control. Uh, violence, debauchery kind of riddled the White House, I mean the palace. And... Um, <clears throat> It was just a little slip there. Um, and we get to this place, I think, if I remember in the sequence right, Belshazzar, who he's labeled king right here, 
he's not actually uh, like the king. Uh, his dad, Nabonidus, is the actual king, and he wasn't a real popular guy, and so for most of his reign, he took his palace and went and, and set it up somewhere um, northwest Arabia. And so Nabonidus is off doing something. Actually, at this point in time, he's out fighting the Persians and the Medes. Um, so when Nabonidus left, he put his son, Belshazzar, kind of in place as the co-regent. So Belshazzar is kind of overseeing a lot of what's going on in the city of Babylon and part of the empire. So it's been about 20, a little over 20 years since Nebuchadnezzar uh, had passed away. And as it turns out, by the time we get to the end of chapter 5, we, we will reach the end of the Babylonian Empire. I mean, the, the Babylonian Empire is going to go down out of commission, bye-bye, at the end of our text today. So this, we are reading what happens the last night of the entire Babylonian empire. So it goes on. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Hmm. If you remember, when King Nebuchadnezzar had taken control of Jerusalem, I mean, this is decades ago by this time, he had gone into the temple, looted the temple, picked up all of the treasures, all of the vessels, instruments that the people of Israel used in the worship of Yahweh, and he carted them all back to Babylon put them in the treasury of his god, Marduk. Now, now, the way these ancients thought, understood life, was that things that played out in the physical realm were uh, signals of what was going on in the heavenly realms. And so when the symbolism of Nebuchadnezzar taking the treasury of Yahweh and putting it in his own god's you know, bank, temple, if you will, was that my God is greater than your God. That was the statement that, that he was making. That's what people would have, would have understood it that way. Now, there was a little bit of um, healthy respect among rulers and uh, peoples so that if you took somebody's uh, treasure that was viewed as the possession of the gods, not possession of the people. This is, these are things that belonged and were owned by the gods. If you took that out of one and you moved it into your own, you still looked at it as sacred. These are, these are instruments that belong to the gods. No human would ever consider using them for their own purposes, not even amongst the pagans. And so we get to these two, three verses right here, and uh, Belshazzar is doing something that even the other pagan rulers, the, even the people that are right there who are, you know, just drunk out of their minds, they would have known, I don't know if we should be doing this. Daniel's pretty careful. He's, he tells us twice who's involved in this. The king makes the command, hey, go get those goblets, those gold and silver goblets from Jerusalem. Let's make a mockery of this God. He might have been drunk, but I think that he knew exactly what he was doing. And not only was he thumbing his nose at God, he was, he was implicating all of the people uh, in that party along with him. Hey, you're going to be party to all of this. So he makes this uh, spectacle of God. Not only does he use the instruments 
from the Jerusalem temple, but he uses them for his own personal purposes and to raise a glass and, and toast his own gods, the gods of a gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. In other words, that's a description of the, maybe the statues that the humans fashioned to represent their gods. It goes on in, in chapter 5, or in, yeah, chapter 5, verse 5. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale. And he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. See, that, that's the hint for me that he knew what he was doing. It might have freaked you out just a little bit to, to see a detached human hand writing something on a wall. Like, uh, it might spook you a little bit. But the way that we're given the description of his fear suggests to me that he knew he made a mistake. He, he knew he was playing with fire here. He was so frightened, his legs became weak, like Gumby. And his knees just started knocking together. It, if you go back, I, I like looking at the Hebrew because, well, the Hebrew was a very picturesque and descriptive language. Um, it might very well have said... His face turned pale. He was so frightened that his legs became weak and he wet himself. That's kind of what the Hebrew is getting at. He is so freaked out at this occurrence that he loses control of, of himself. So the king summoned the enchanters, the astrologers, the diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon... Whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. So all the smart people in Babylon could not come up with um, an answer, could not understand what was written on the wall. And, and you know, he comes across, he, it says the king summoned. Uh, the language there is he screamed for, he yelled out for. He, this is a cry of desperation. He is afraid. He doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't he doesn't have the literacy to read what's on the wall. And so he screams out for all of these uh, astrologers and, and enchanters to come in and interpret this for him. The queen, the queen mother, is better read there, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles came into the banquet hall. Now, <clears throat> the queen here is not his wife. It says the queen mother. And we're not exactly sure which queen this was. Um, I think that there's probably a majority of the scholars would, would lean to believe that this was um, either Nebuchadnezzar's wife or one of his daughters. But this queen had been around for a while, this queen mother, and even in a land or even in a time when women didn't have that much of a voice, the, the queen had a special place uh, in the royal palace. And so the, when we talk about the queen mother here, she would have been a very credible person, one whom people would turn their ear and listen to what she had to say. She would have been viewed in, in the wise category. She says, <clears throat> uh, may the king live forever. So that's a greeting for the king. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight 
and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, now we know that, that Belshazzar is not Nebuchadnezzar's like physical son, but in the line of the way um, kings reigned and leadership reigned, in, in the line of King Nebuchadnezzar, those who came after him would be viewed uh, as a son. They were a little more uh, loose in their understanding of son than, than maybe our culture would, would allow. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel who by this time was probably right around, let's just say, 80 years old, been around for a while, seen a lot, been a significant part of the Babylonian Empire for some time, although it seems right now like he's uh, kind of on the shelf, maybe in retirement. Uh, the kings after Nebuchadnezzar probably, as time went on, had just kind of written him off, or you know, maybe he faded into the side, or maybe they just didn't care about what he said or his wise leadership anymore. For whatever reason, um, Belshazzar is not too familiar with him. The king said to him, are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? Now, I've been going back and forth with myself all week long on what tone Belshazzar used in these verses with Daniel. One part of me thinks that, okay, <clears throat> he's afraid, doesn't know what's going on, and the queen, who he has at least some respect for, because he did what she said, part of me thinks that he was um, maybe gracious, courteous. Hey, thank you for coming in, dropping whatever you're doing, getting out of the fishing boat, you know, whatever Daniel was off doing. Thank you for coming and uh, stepping into this, this issue that we're, we have going on. The other part of me thinks he's totally anti-God. He is afraid. He's drunk. He's got a thousand, at least a thousand people around him. And as parties go, you know, there may be a little um, egging on here, like, well, what are you going to do with this Daniel guy? Part of me thinks... Most of me thinks that maybe he was a bit sarcastic, condescending. Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father brought from Judah? In other words, he's reminding him already, you're a slave. You aren't any better than these goblets that we're drinking from right now. You are a possession. I own you. I've heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight and intelligence and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now, I've heard that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Can you hear the sarcasm in that? Like, well, the smartest people in Babylon can't figure out, but oh, Daniel, he's going to be able to figure it out. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you'll be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made third highest ruler in the kingdom. I don't think that Belshazzar had <clears throat> any belief that what he's promising to Daniel as a reward would, that he would have to give up on, give him any of that. Well, then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts. I don't care about your stuff. I don't care about the position. I'm 80 years old. I'm in retirement. I'll, I'll just tell you what it means. Give your, give your rewards to someone else. Verse 18. Your majesty, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those 
he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. That's a lot of power. You think about that, right? He, the King Nebuchadnezzar held the life of his people in the palm of his hand. But when his heart became arrogant, when that power went to his head, and when he was hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. So far, Daniel has come in. He said, I will tell you the meaning of the writing on the wall. And then he gives this, this little speech right off the bat that has nothing to do with the writing on the wall. Now, why is that? Daniel's a smart guy, remember. He's a wise one. King Nebuchadnezzar was viewed as the greatest king that, that Babylon ever had. Nebuchadnezzar is the one who built it to its pinnacle. Nebuchadnezzar is the one that uh, was the architectural guru, the designer, the, the planner, the implementer of the Babylonian dream that was taking, that the people were participating at that very moment. King Nebuchadnezzar set it up so that Belshazzar could sit on whatever throne that he was sitting on. Daniel is reminding him that the greatest king that your empire has ever known, he was humbled by God, and he let go of his pride, and he acknowledged God as his savior. The greatest king that your empire has ever known, remember that, this king? And you think, you think that you can do the opposite. You think that somehow, in some way, you are better than what Nebuchadnezzar was. He, Daniel is using somebody from his own culture. He's painting this picture of this is what letting go of pride could look like. He had all of this. He lost all of it. He humbled himself before God, and he was restored. That's one outcome of pride. Verse 22, but you, Belshazzar, his son, remember, we're connected here. Same line, you have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze and iron, of wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand you know, we, we read silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood. It could very well be power, fame, fortune, position, career, um, sexuality. Uh, you, there's a long line of things where we just harden our hearts and somehow we as humans say to God, no, what you put in place, what you put in motion isn't quite good enough for me. I want to make my own choices. You may have set it up like this, but I don't think that you really know what you're talking about, God. And so we're, we are going to choose this path. And when we toast, when we raise our glasses, and, and uh, we are going to toast them to what we want, gold, silver, bronze, wood, power, fame, fortune, what, whatever falls into that category. You did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. That's a strong sentence right there. That's the gospel right there. But you did not honor the God. It's an explanation of the human condition. You did not honor the God who holds your life in his hand. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. So now finally, after all of that, 
setup, Daniel is to the point where, okay, I'm going to tell you what's written on the wall there. You've mocked God, you've hardened your heart, and here's, here's the message for you. This is the inscription that was written, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. And here's what these words mean. And this is pretty self-explanatory, folks. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. So Mene, Tekel, and Parson or Paris are all units of measurement that were used in the marketplace. And so, you know, we've talked about balance scales before. And in the ancient times, if you went to the market and you wanted, um, you know, a pound of wheat, you'd put the pound weight on one side and wheat on the other side. And when it was, when it was oxios, that's the Greek word for level, when it, was, when it was level, that's when you had a fair, a just exchange transaction, right? And so the writing on the wall is using these, Im these images, weights of... of of measure. And it says that, okay, your days are numbered. You've been weighed on the scales. God's put you on one side and his expectations on the other side, and you've been found wanting. You don't measure up. Therefore, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. In other words, the end is imminent. It's close at hand. Judgment of God has come and you have not softened. You have not humbled yourself. Verse 29. Then Belshazzar's, then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. So exactly what he said, I don't want these gifts. I think Belshazzar is furthering the picture of mockery here. Well, I'm going to give you all of this because you, there's, no, there's nothing in the text that says Belshazzar responded to the message at all. Zero. He went ahead and put the purple robe on and put that chain on his neck and said, yes, you know, you're third in the land. You know, my dad, Nabonidus, and me, you can't, you can't get ahead of me, but, you know, you can come in right after me. So third place, that's, that's good, right? No response to the message at all. Hmm. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Time ran out on this guy. He hardened his heart to such a degree. He was so arrogant that he could not see that the Medes and the Persians were already outside the city gates. Instead of paying attention to what's going on around him, he's in there living the dream with a thousand people and a lot of wine. He's drunk, he can't think straight, and his pride has set in, and I'm invincible. This city is impregnable. Nobody can get in. But at the very moment, the Medes and the Persians had figured out how to divert the Euphrates River, and the moat that surrounded the city of Babylon went down to just enough water where all of their army could wade through it and besiege the city. And that very night, he was taken. Like I said, it doesn't take too much to understand chapter 5. There's three things I want to tell you. One, time runs out. Your time is limited. The second thing is that there is writing on the wall. And the third thing is that there's a God who loves you and provides a way out. All of our time is limited. Time will run out on you. 
Do you like playing games? We, we like games in our family. There's, there's this game called Catchphrase, right? It's Catchphrase. And there's this little uh, disc, and you, there's like a, a round card of prompt. And so you get, you get the disc, and there's a timer built into it. So at the beginning of the round, you push the timer to start. And first person in the circle gets it, and you have to describe. You get, have to get everybody around you to say the word without... Um, you have to describe the word, right? Is that how it goes, I think? Um, you describe the word, they have to say it, and then if it, they get it right, then you pass it along to your neighbor. And all the while, it's going tick, tick. And then at some point it starts going faster, tick, 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 tick. And you know that if you can't get your uh, team to guess the word, that at some point it's going to go, and you lose. Time runs out. If you watch sports of any kind, there's a little more pressure as the game gets towards the end, right? You don't have to watch the NBA except for the last two minutes of the game. Because it all comes down to that last two minutes, and then it's really intense because they know that at some point that clock is going to expire. And if your shot is still in your hand and the, the little red ring around the backboard goes red, your shot doesn't count. It doesn't matter if it was you know, a full-court shot that would be a three-pointer to win the game. If that's gone red, your time is up. Done. I, TV shows and movies are famous for playing on the emotions of time running out. There's so many shows that have this, this, uh, this developing love interest. And one character is going off, you know, on an adventure somewhere, and, and the other character finally gets up enough nerve to say, you know, I, want, I just want to be with you. And you can see this happening on the screen. You know, they're running through the airport in slow motion, and that music is going on in the background, and you can see the other person walking down the little tunnel to the air, airplane, and your heart is saying, I really hope they make it. Run a little bit faster. None of this slow motion. And, and you know what happens. They get down, and they, they sit down in their seat and click, and... This person who's running through the airport runs up to the gate just as the plane is pulling away. It's too late. The time ran out, and that was the last episode for the season. So you got to wait a whole till the whole next season before you can find out what happens to these two people. It gets a little more serious than that though. I had a friend who was estranged from his dad. Hadn't talked to him in years. And he would always say, I need to call my dad. I, need to, I just need to reconcile with him. I need to be okay with him. I need to forgive him. And then he got the call that it was too late. And he couldn't reach out and reconcile with his dad. It's cute when we're running through the airport, but it hits a little closer to home when we bring it down to the reality of our life that time will run out. The Bible's pretty clear. One of my favorite psalms, Psalm 103, has, has this verse. It says, For the days of human life are like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. Human life, time is precious, folks. There's business that we need to attend to. There's things that, that we need to deal with, and we need to stop kicking them down the road, and we just need to, to face them head on right now because our days are numbered. Time ran out for Belshazzar in, in our text. Physically, he lost his life. 
that very night. Spiritually, time ran out for him. He refused to humble himself before the Most High God, even though he had been present to people who, who were bearing witness to God Almighty, and he refused to change and acknowledge that God was sovereign over him. He did not respond like his predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar. He did not respond like the Ninevites did, the Assyrian Empire, when, you know, remember Jonah and the whale, and, you know, his task, what God wanted him to do was to go preach a message to the Ninevites. And when he finally got around to doing that, he went and, and gave them God's message, and they all repented, all of them, from the king all the way down. They recognized their pride and laid it down. Belshazzar would not. There will come a day when Jesus will return. The day of the Lord is what it's called in many places in our text. And if you have your Bibles open, flip over to Matthew. Jesus talks about this. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you stranger and invite you in or, or needing clothes and clothe you? When, when did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did you see... Uh, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Folks, this is serious stuff. This is a really tough message to preach. It's an obvious message to preach. Blatantly obvious. I know that it can be heard as fear-mongering to scare people into making decisions. I, I grew up listening to some of those kinds of messages. You know, we're just going to talk about the fire and brimstone of hell, and hopefully people are scared enough into making a commitment to Jesus. I'm not one of those kinds of preachers. I think you know that. I'm a realist, though. I want to be as open and honest as I know how to be. <laughs> and our passage today says, your time is running out. The passage today says, there's writing on the wall. It's the this, this kind of message is, is in our Bibles, not because God wants to scare you into something, but because God loves you. And he wants you to be able to avoid some of the consequences where our pride and our behavior has taken us. It'd be just as easy for me to skip over texts like this and just stand up here and preach things that make us all feel really good inside, and warm and fuzzy and all that. Um, but you know that I don't shy away from tackling difficult issues that we face on a regular basis. A lot of people say, well, why? 
be easier to do something else? Yes, it would, but I love you too much to avoid it. This story is first and foremost about a spiritual condition. Belshazzar was spiritually blind. He was totally illiterate. He could not read the writing on the wall. He, he had not learned from his predecessors. He, he was too caught up in himself and in his power. Um, he was blinded by his pride to see that there, was any, that there was any kind of a consequence to his behavior. He thought he was like one of the gods, and in fact, he was mocking other gods. He couldn't see where his actions were leading him. He was both arrogant and foolish. So God spelled it out for him on the wall, and Daniel read it to him and interpreted it for him. I mean, the writing is on the wall. The, we use that phrase, that cliche in, in our vernacular, and the, we refer to it as things that are um, obvious to us, things that are imminent, things that are, you know, they're just going to happen. It's the handwriting is on the wall. You might as well face it. I remember one time when it was spoken out loud to me using this phrase. Um, I had been training for a long time to participate in an Ironman triathlon, and about a month before the race, i tore uh, just a slight tear in the tendon in the back of my knee. And my knee swelled up and just purple from about here all the way down to here. Went and saw a doctor. Of course, he took a scan, went back, he read the scan for me. And he said, I'm not going to tell you that you can't do the race. I won't tell you no. But the writing's on the wall. It will be the most painful day of your life. <laughs> Thank you very much. I think I will sit this one out. But that was hard, because I didn't want to lay my pride down. I had worked hard for that. You know, we face things in our life. I have a friend who's facing some serious health issues. And the doctors tell him that he needs to change his diet and his exercise habits. For whatever reason, he doesn't think the doctors are right. Or at least his behavior isn't changing at all. The writing is on the wall. You're going to have some serious consequences. Pride works its way in and convinces us that somehow we're going to be the one who's, who's invincible, who the, it doesn't affect. If you flirt with danger long enough, um, you're going to lose some time. There are consequences to our actions, to our behaviors, to our thoughts. So I have to ask you, are you turning a blind eye to something in your life right now? Are there bad habits? Are you overeating? Are you avoiding exercise? Are you being undisciplined with your finances? Are you running up credit card bills? Are you careless at work? Are you treating relationships just casually? Because if you are, there's writing on the wall. There's consequences to all of that. I don't know what the writing on the wall is telling you, but, but some of the, the big headers that I'm able to read Our depression, our loneliness, because we push people to the side. It's chronic poor health, it's financial ruin, it's losing your job, it's an estranged relationship, it's divorce, it's an addiction. See, once in a while we got to evaluate what we're doing in our life, recognize that Time's running out, and there's writing on the wall. And the way that I live today is going to, there, there's going to be benefits or consequences that I reap tomorrow, or the next day, or the next week, or the next year. Sometime. It's on the wall. And 
I think we fool ourselves to thinking that we're going to be the one who escapes it. You know, we know. We're famous. Oh, I know. I know. I should change. I know. Information doesn't lead to transformation. Just because you know something doesn't mean that the head knowledge is going to do something in your life unless you put it into practice. When we hold on to those things and harden our hearts to them, that's, that's pride. That's deadly pride in our life. Spiritually speaking, i got to ask you, how are things with you and God? How are things with you and God? Are you running from him? You keep kicking things down the street. Now I know about God. I come to church once in a while. But you've never gone all in with him and gotten off that throne of our heart that we were singing about earlier and said, Lord, you sit on this throne because I'm not doing so well running my own show. Maybe you've thought that once in a while, but then, you know what, I'm taking my chair back. I want to sit on my chair. God, you move over to this. Is that, is that how you're living life? How are things with you and God? Is your, is your pride blinding you to reality? Are you, are you giving God part of your life but holding on to things in reserve? Like, I, I, I'll give you pretty much everything, God, except I got to hold on to these habits over here. These, you know, these aren't really hurting me or anybody else. Wrong. I'm going to give you this, God, but not this. That's, that is pride welling up inside you, forcing you, causing you to turn a blind eye to it. Maybe you see it, maybe you don't. Maybe today's, wow, I never thought about it like that. Belshazzar was spiritually blind. He had hardened his heart to the things of God. He couldn't read the writing, but Daniel could. So in this text, we get a picture of Belshazzar who is spiritually illiterate, and we get a picture of Daniel who has lived his life in the presence of God, and the Holy Spirit had filled him, and he was spiritually literate. So he could walk into that environment and he could look at that and he could say, I know exactly what's going on. You've hardened your heart and God is calling you out on it right now. The story teaches us about becoming people who are spiritually literate. And how do you do that? How do you do that? Well, you open your Bible and you start to read it. And you ask God while you're reading it, Lord, would you help me understand what I'm reading? He'll do it. You pray. You come to church. You sign up for a core group or you're in some kind of Bible study where you're connected with other spiritually connected believers. It's called counsel of the holy. Surround yourself with people in a position where, wow, I think they are so spiritually sensitive, I need to be with them more so that I can gain the same kind of spiritual literacy. God says to all of us that our time is, our time is limited. It's running out. Uh, God tells us that the, the writing on the wall is, is there. You and your pride have been measured on the scales of my justice and you've been found wanting. Our sin outweighs our good. Because when God sets up the scale, he puts Jesus on one side perfection himself his his holy character is on one side and on the other side of that scale of justice we get to stand and he says you don't measure up to what i want you have been found wanting the writing on the wall if i were to use my hand to write your judgment on the wall is you lose game over you don't measure up Fortunately, we have the whole New Testament and a big portion of the Old Testament that reminds us that God loves us and he continually comes after us because he wants to forgive us. 
and be in relationship with us, instead of using his hand to write on the wall, you lose, you're going to hell, you're going to die, he stretches out both of them and allows himself to be nailed to a cross so that all of your sin, all of our sin, can be piled on himself and left there at the cross, and you can be forgiven. Jesus came to do that for you. He's spelled it out really clearly that without him, we're nothing. He was willing to take all of the sin of humanity, crimes against himself, human pride, and he's willing to nail it to that cross. Colossians chapter 2, you can write it down, verses 13 and 14, I think it is. When you were dead in your sins, and that's what we deserve, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. So we lost on the, the way scale right there. He canceled that. He canceled that charge which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away and he nailed it to the cross. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ came and died for us. That's the ending to your story. That could be the ending to your story. So we get to the end of chapters 4 and 5 here and and the end of chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar turned He had been exiled. He's eaten grass like an animal. And he says, I can, do, I can do better than this. God has something more for me. And he was willing to turn his focus from looking down on everybody else and being hardened by his own pride, consumed with his own arrogance and power and prestige. Look at me. Instead of looking at life like that, now he recognized that there is a God over and above me and In his presence, I am nothing. I better turn my gaze and look at him. And then in chapter 5, we're given the other picture. You can hold on, maybe even for a long time, but your time's going to run up. It's going to run out. There will come a day where there won't be a tomorrow. And God's written all of this on the wall. It's in the pages of our scripture. You can go and find it. You can listen to it. And on our own, we don't add up to much. We don't, we don't balance out with Jesus. But Jesus is taking care of all of that. And so that doesn't have to be your story. You can change your mind. You can lay down your pride. You can say, you know what, I'm getting off the throne of my life, Lord. Will you come and sit on it? I'm certain that somebody in here should say amen. 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 Let's pray.